Hello, and welcome to Think Queerly. I am here with Michael Bach. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. So let me introduce you. You're the uh, founder and chair of the board of directors of the Canadian Centre for Diversity and Inclusion. You're a nationally and internationally recognized thought leader and a subject matter expert in the fields of inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. And you bring a vast knowledge of leading practices in a live setting uh, to your work. Now, your first book, Birds of All Feathers, Doing Diversity and Inclusion Right, is something you and I spoke about last October in episode 201. And in that book, you argued for creating diverse, inclusive, inclusive workspaces. It's not just the right thing to do, it's the smart thing to do. And today we're going to be talking about your forthcoming book, Alphabet Soup, The Essential Guide to LGBTQ2 Plus Inclusion, which is going to be officially released on March 29th, 2022 this year. Mm-hmm. Whew. So you have been busy. I have been busy. Yes. <laughs> Fool that I am. I wrote a second book. Well, I want to get into that in just a moment, Michael, but as I was reading through Alphabet Soup, the um, introduction, there was a few things that I didn't know about you. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think this might be interesting uh, as a background about who you are and the knowledge base and the experiential base that you bring to the work that you do. And the two things are that you worked for George Smitherman, who was Mm -hmm. Ontario's first openly LGBTQ plus minister of provincial parliament. And then in 2007, I did not know that you started what has become Canada's LGBTQ workplace inclusion organization, Pride at Work Canada. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it seems like you've been, (laughs) this is good. You've been heavily involved in LGBTQ organization, politics, diversity from from quite an early age. (laughs) Absolutely. And it goes, it's, there's more before that. Um, I, uh, my first organization that I worked for in the in the LGBTQ2 plus space was uh, and this is going to date me they were called the Lesbian and Gay Youth of Toronto right and, and that became that story, take, right uh no no LGBT uh, um it it became the Lesbian Gay Lesbian Gay Bisexual Trans Youth of Toronto I think the LGBT Youth of Toronto uh and they folded a few years ago I don't remember how many but at the time, it was a youth group. We met out of the 519 in Toronto, mm-hmm. and um, it was a group for you know people up to the age of 24 who were coming out and and just a, a sort of a support group. Um, and uh, there was a a spinoff organization uh, called LIPS, Lesbian Youth Peer Support, okay. which was actually started by Kristen Wong Tam, who's a city councillor in the city of Toronto. And uh, yeah, so we were kind of sister organizations for a while, but it, you know, that's where it all began was an involvement with community organizations in the, in the community um, and, and the need for more LGBTQ plus inclusion. So you founded uh, the Canadian Centre for Diversity and Inclusion, but I believe you've left in a sense of being an employee there, but you're still on the board and working in a consulting role. I, yes, I have left an employee. And in fact, I have stepped down from the board, which is relatively recent. Okay. Uh, I didn't want to interrupt the, <laughs> the introduction, yeah. but uh, I, uh, yeah, I've, I've stepped away. It was time, you know, nine years. It was really, it's really time for the organization to, grow and foster on their own. Um, I'm a big believer as a founder, as an infamous founder mm-hmm. uh, of, of knowing when to leave the party. And uh, I believe that as founders, we are only, we only serve a purpose for so long. Right. Um, just as I did with Pride at Work Canada, I was the chair of the board for six years and then mm-hmm you know, actively stepped away and said, it's time for this organization to, um, to grow on its own without me. And, you know, arguably they've done okay. That was uh, uh, 10 something years ago now. 
Um, mm. And uh, they are a very successful organization. But I think as founders, it's important to know when to leave the party. That's interesting. I mean, that, that could be a whole other discussion yes. podcast episode about launching organizations and you know whether it's beneficial to have some sort of a uh, involvement or not. But you know, before I get into you know the book proper, Alphabet Soup, um, what's on the you know what? Let's come back to that. Let's come back okay. to what's on the horizon after we do this and what the, maybe okay. the next steps are. So I I wanted to just quote something from the third page of the book. Um, and having read uh, both Alphabet Soup and then Birds of All Feathers, there's there's definitely a different tone. And I don't mean tone in any way positive or negative, but I guess it's a, a perspective or an approach. Mm-hmm. So you write, sexuality and gender are not the same thing, but they are interrelated, dot, 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 sometimes. You'll find a lot of myth busting throughout this book. That's one of the main purposes of the book, to educate. A big barrier to creating fully inclusive spaces is plain old ignorance. There are a lot of straight cisgender people who have the best of intentions, but we all know what the road to hell was paved with. So first, what I'll say is there's a lot more humor in this book. (laughs) There's a lot of very much Michael humor that comes through in this book, which I quite enjoyed. Yeah, maybe you want to speak to that and speak to the the overall tone and and difference in this book. Yeah, well, obviously, this book is very personal for me because what Birds of All Feathers was, uh, first of all, intended really exclusively for workplaces. Yeah, and uh, as much as this book is called. Alphabet Soup, the essential guide to LGBTQ2 plus inclusion at work. Mm-hmm. It when I define work, I define any space. Mm-hmm. So that could be a workplace, it could be a college or university, it could be a hospital, it could be a church, mm-hmm. um, any space where people coexist. Mm-hmm. And so the the second book was really personal. It was really about. Uh, if I if I had to get completely selfish, it's about creating space where I can go to as an individual and feel welcome. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm also a big believer in humor that, you know, I, I believe I subscribe to the research that says that people learn uh, far better when they are in a good mood versus when they're in a bad mood. Yeah. And so I leverage humor um, to uh, uh, get people to that point to absorb the information. My my mother, actually, I was with her on the weekend and she was reading the book and she was laughing out loud. Uh-huh. And there's nothing that gives me more joy than knowing that people are finding the humor in my writing. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. And she said something that I think is a, a real compliment. She said, <clears throat> I can hear you. Mm-hmm. in the text that yeah. I, I know it's you who's written this book. And I thought, wow, that's, you know, you're not just saying that cause you're my mother, but, uh, but thank you. <laughs> thanks mom. <laughs> uh, thanks mommy. No, it's true. Um, you know, two points about the, the humor. Uh, I wrote an article a few weeks ago and I was about three quarters of the way through as one of my tasks reading your book and it just dawned on me. It's like, I need a, a hook to open up this article. Cause it was like so bloody boring the way I had started it yeah. originally. And I'm like, why don't I try some of my own humor, not to copy yours. It was like, I have my own sense of humor and I let it come out and it just came out naturally. And I submitted it somewhere else and it was just like picked up right like that. They're like, great article. I'm like, interesting. Mm-hmm. But when we deal with a topic, like what you're, dealing with you know we're we're talking to each other we're preaching to the converted here uh but for somebody else who's reading it that is seeking to understand or might be an armchair ally and we'll get into what that means um if there's any discomfort that is the beautiful thing about humor because humor can express one discomfort or it can help you over the hump of discomfort sure right and it's a nice break in a topic that seems to be so uh, divisive right now. It's like, you know, why do we need to teach inclusion? <laughs> yeah. And and it will be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are things just, I mean, in the first 
section of the book, which is all about language. Mm-hmm. I'm sure for some people that it's going to be uncomfortable. So at least if you're uncomfortable, you can be enjoying yourself to some extent. You don't, you know, it doesn't have to be doom and gloom and heavy organ music in the background. It can be, you know, like, oh, I'm going to laugh. Like, oh, look, there's a head explosion emoji. And yes, I do use emojis in the book. And I had to fight with my publisher to get them in there. But I thought I thought it was really important to sort of be current in my language and the use of symbolism. And, and uh, I, I, you know, it's okay to be uncomfortable about this topic. And that's really, that was really a, a priority for me in writing. It was, it's okay to be uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting challenge. And even for people who identify within the LGBTQ spectrum, and then there are so many variations because there's sex, there's sexuality, there's gender, there's cis, there's trans, and, you know, you can easily turn your head and, oh, there's been another letter added to uh-huh. the, you know, initialism or, oh, what does, you know, pan something mean? And, uh, and it's just a way of individuals, one, trying to express who they feel that they are, but also trying to seek that connection with other birds of the same feather. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I'm very clear to say that a book like this is, is sort of redundant the second it's printed because something is going to change. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least it provides people with a bit of a base knowledge yeah. to open them up to different identities, yeah. to get them to understand that it's not about them yeah. and just move beyond that sort of self uh, that sense of self when it comes to this conversation about sexuality and gender. Yeah. So if we keep on this particular alphabet soup, um, you know, I already said some of this sexuality, sexual orientation, attraction, gender identity, gender expression, and on and on and on. So humor is a good aspect here. If you were standing in front of a group teaching this information, but how do you speak to someone or a group of people who start to roll their eyes when you're having this conversation, when they're glazing over, maybe people in, and actually I'm interested to know without naming names, where do you encounter this most like higher level leadership or other members of the team, or is it just in hard to tell? Good question. So, I mean, first off, how do I approach it? If I was giving a presentation on this and I do that quite a bit, it's, it's very matter of fact, it's very, um, you know, whether you like it or not, these things exist. Mm -hmm. You don't have to like it. I don't care if you like it. I'm, I'm gay. I'm gender nonconforming. You don't like that. That's not going to change it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. talking about it very matter of factly and saying these this these are things and then really teaching a message of respect. Um, there's always an eye roll. There's always mm-hmm. somebody, you mm-hmm. know, who thinks we're snowflakes and we're being too PC and that that exists out there. And I shouldn't say always, but sometimes. And I would say that I probably get it the most from kind of the middle management audience. Okay. And. I'm thinking about one organization that I did a bunch of training for years ago and we were training all middle managers and you could just see every once in a while someone come in and they didn't want to be there. Yeah. They didn't want to talk about these things Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you can see it in their body language. You can see it in their, the, the way they engage and quite honestly, I don't spend a lot of time on them yeah. because you can only fight so hard before you run out of energy. Right. And I'm going to spend my, my energy working with people that want to learn and Mm -hmm. want to advance on this topic and recognize how valuable and important it is to have inclusive spaces for LGBTQ plus folks, as well as anybody, Mm -hmm. you know, somebody who's really entrenched in that negative belief I'm not going to spend a lot of time on because I honestly, I don't know that I can move them along 
in right. a, a way that is really helpful for anybody. Right. No, that's, that's smart. I mean, we have to know what our limits are, but there's a couple of other factors at play. If you're invited into the organization and they're open to these changes, there's the possibility of things happening and things being picked up by osmosis. It's almost like, you know, the, the three little pigs. <laughs> if the organization overall decides to build up the, the house with the brick walls, that organization is going to be strong if it's also being built on a strong foundation of diversity and equity and inclusion. Um, and the few people that are left out, well, they're left out. Um, and I guess they'll either be stuck in their ways, they'll never get promoted, or they'll just either be let go or they'll quit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and ultimately that's, that's their choice. Right. Um, you know, organizations can move past their employees. Mm-hmm. And I've seen it many a time where mm-hmm. an organization makes a determination that, you know, whatever, they're going to focus on a particular topic. They're going to be an inclusive employer or whatever. And, mm-hmm. Some people just can't behind that, can't get behind it. And in fact, I would say that, um, you know, things like the pandemic and vaccine mandates have shown that Mm -hmm. where employers, some employers in this country made the decision that they were going to require vaccination. And some people decided that they couldn't do that. And so they left that organization. One of the main organizers of the, the conflict that happened in, in Ottawa recently is a former RCMP officer yeah. who lost his job because he was not willing to get vaccinated. That's his choice. Yeah. But there's also a re- repercussion of that. So if an employer makes the decision that they're going to uh, you know, get on board with creating inclusive environments for LGBTQ2 plus folks, as you as an individual have a choice. You can either get on board or you can stay and where you are and, and miss the boat. Yeah. I think that analogy works. I don't know. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Boats go, you get on board a boat, right? How's that? Yeah, for you get on board a boat. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> so what about pronouns? This is, a, this is mm. a funny thing. And amongst all the ways of naming and labeling, um, a couple of years ago, I wrote, an article and I probably used a little bit of a a catchy title, too many gender identifying pronouns, the decision fatigue paradox. Mm. Um, But I'm in the article, I was supportive of it, but I was taking a linguistic approach looking at how we have loan words like uh, computer came from English and went into German, or we'll take like zeitgeist uh, from German into English. Um, How France has, I don't know if it's a, lingue francais or something where they're trying to control too many changes to the language and yet and then we have grammars and we have languages other than english that have actual sex for the nouns german has three you know masculine feminine and neuter and and it gets very confusing and challenging and then there's an there is an organic nature to language And language often tries to find the easiest way to solve a solution. And for me, it's like they, them. We could just lose gendered pronouns and we could move to they, them. What I've not seen as much as, but I wonder if you are still seeing it a lot in your work, is like the the created pronouns, like Z, the Z-E. I... I seem to remember that coming up a few years ago, and it's, I don't know if it's sort of disappeared. I don't know if you know anything about the trending of pronouns and where they're going. I don't, you don't see it a lot. Yeah. Um, I think pronouns are very personal for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And there are some people that identify with the pronouns. These are, mm-hmm. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. there's lots of different, pronouns, their origins uh, are all over the place. Um, Keeping in mind that he, him, she, her, they, them, they were all made up at some point. Absolutely. At some point, we referred to a man as he and him. It just happened. I don't know the history of it, but it happened. Um, 
occasionally you'll see pronouns beyond they, them, Mm -hmm. but they're very much in the minority and not that they, they should be. I, I think it's very much personal choice and I respect people's choices and I will identify with them how they want to be identified just as I would expect people to identify me, how I want to be identified. Um, you just don't see them them very often. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting play with language just to, to always see where things are going. But there is that um, definitely the need to be open. I mean, it, it is it is so easy when we, maybe that's not the right word. It is easy to get overwhelmed in this world with so much information. And I've heard the comment, you've probably heard the comments like, why can't you just keep it simple? It's like, well, because I'm a person <laughs> and I, I feel the need to express myself in the way that I want to be appreciated. I, I, I find this whole conversation terribly interesting because we change names all the time. Yes. Mm-hmm. People who get married sometimes mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. some parts of the world change their name. I- I love this analogy. I've never thought of this. My mother was born Karen Kennedy. Mm-hmm. And at 20, how old is she? I think she was 21 when they got married. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she changed and became Karen Bach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now people know her as Karen Bach. Her parents didn't continue referring to her as Karen Kennedy. Her friends didn't continue referring to her by her maiden name. They all yeah. just adjusted. Yeah. So what's the big deal? If I suddenly decided that I was going, here's an example. If I was going by Mike instead of Michael, now I always go by Michael mainly because I'm married to a person named Michael. And so, and he goes by Mike. But what if I decided I was going to go by Mike? Mm-hmm. No one would have a problem with it. Yeah. Yeah. But because I suddenly want to use the pronouns they, them, people are getting all freaked out that this is, well, we can't do that to language. Yes, we can. We do it all the time. It's just a discomfort and it's a, a recognition of being willing to work through the discomfort. And I suppose there's an aspect of maybe needing to help people recognize that they will make mistakes and that's okay. But if they are willing to go, oh crap, I made a mistake. I'm sorry. Oh, those two words. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> make all the difference. They do. I also think it forces people to examine their own identity. Mm-hmm. I, I'm thinking about one person I did some coaching with who really struggled with the concept of, of you know, acknowledging people's pronouns. And, and it, what it came down to was it was forcing them to really examine their own identity, whether, whether or not maybe they needed to consider their own gender. Yeah their sexuality. And, you know, in the end they did the work and they came away from and said, yeah, you know what, this isn't about me. And they were able to move past it, but it forces people to really take a look. Building on that, there's Mm -hmm. a section in the book um, where you made an adaptation of the heterosexual questionnaire. Mm -hmm. And I had to laugh at that (laughs) because it's such a great, it's, it's a reframing. So instead of presuming as let's say a cis straight male or cis straight female, that you were just born this way um, and that you've never questioned it. I, I just want to read the six of the questions and then have you speak to it because I think they're so fascinating and there's, uh, there's probably like a good 15 or 20 of them as questions, but what do you think caused your heterosexuality? When and how did you first decide you were cisgender? To whom have you disclosed your heterosexual tendencies and how did they react? Love that one. Is, there, is it possible that your heterosexuality stems from a neurotic fear of others of the same sex? My jaw dropped at that question because I thought, <laughs> that's a political question if I've ever heard one. I won't read any more, but I thought maybe like talk to these because these are fantastic. These are such a gender performative exercise on the individual who's never considered them. Sure. Well, and I put it in because I wanted to make it clear to the reader yeah. that for what 
some people consider to be totally acceptable behavior to say to people, well, maybe you just haven't read the, met the right person yet, which right. Lord knows I heard when I was, you know, first coming out, maybe mm-hmm. you haven't met the right girl yet. Oh, I've met the right girl yet. His name is Robert. Um, uh, and he was a bit of a girl. Um, when you turn it around and say, ask yourself these questions, you know, when did you know you were straight? Yeah. When did you know you were cisgender? No one ever asks that because of course we just are straight and cisgender. And in order to be LGBTQ2+, you have to go through this whole rigmarole, this process of coming out and coming to terms with your identity because the world tells you you're not like everybody else. And so I, and this questionnaire comes uh, from the 1970s and I, I love it because it just makes people uncomfortable. Yeah. And it makes them realize that these are some of the questions that they themselves have asked. Yeah. Other LGBTQ2 plus people in their lives and see how inappropriate it is to ask those questions. Yeah. Well, um, I'm forgetting his name at the moment. It's okay. But, you know, one of the questions there do you think you may have turned to heterosexuality out of fear of rejection? To me, I read further into that around how boys are brought up to men, straight boys are taught to be men, to turn off feelings to, as, as kids, as young boys, you know, they can show affection to other boys until maybe a parent sees them. And that is not part of how they understand the world. And like, no, you know, don't do that. Don't be affectionate towards this other boy. And then we create this straight heterosexual male that doesn't know how to experience, express, feel emotions, feel empathy, and also winds up having fewer friendships and a higher risk of suicide. Yep. It's a cycle and it's a vicious one. I think as queer people, we're, to some extent, we're kind of free from all of that nonsense where we can just make our own rules. That isn't to say it's easy. I mean, I went through a lot of trauma in my life and it's taken me a long time to get to the point where I kind of am who I am and I'm very proud of who I am. Mm -hmm. Um, But as members of the LGBTQ2 plus communities, we're able to just say, yeah, that's not going to work for me. Mm -hmm. And I'm okay with that. There's a, another section of the book that I'll just quote, um, about helping people understand that things are on a spectrum and just not a simple binary. And it's so succinct the way you put it together. And it speaks to something, a few things we've already talked about here, but quoting you, if you don't understand the difference between attraction, identity, and expression, you risk misgendering someone or making assumptions about their relationships and the like, which signals that you haven't done the work and LGBTQ two plus people are not in a safe, inclusive environment. Yeah. It's, I think we actually have, as a community have done a bit of a disservice to straight cisgender people because we talk about this initialism LGBTQ2 plus as if mm-hmm. it's one homogeneous group of people, yeah. not even close. Yeah. I mean, in and of itself, we've got, you know, the L, the G and the B, which exclusively represent sexualities, the T, mm-hmm. which exclusively represents gender identities and then the Q and the two, which can be either sexuality or gender. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you explain that to people and people just look at you like you've lost it. Like, mm-hmm. what? You, they're the, what do you mean they're not the same? What do you mean you can be a trans lesbian or, a, you know, a queer? And that can be either, like, it just is so hard for people to wrap their brains around. So, we need to do again, some myth busting here to break that down and go, we are not talking about the same thing. We are not a homogeneous group. It is essentially a a way of embracing the idea of othering as a community where we've said, this is a group of people who are simply not straight and not cisgender. 
Everyone else gets in the tent except for the straight cisgender. And even then we've got a letter for you and that's A for ally and you can come in too. That's so funny. It's, it's, it's funny because, you know, I long for, I long for the day. We talked about this in the last podcast um, where none of this really matters. You know, probably it will to some extent or other things are going to matter, but it's, I guess a bottom-up approach that's been happening for quite some time. You know, we had in the seventies what was called gay liberation because it was pretty uh-huh. much gays and lesbians, and then we, you know, expanded the um, initialism, and you know, trans people were doing a hell of a lot of work back then, but not recognized, and you uh-huh. know, they're still, you know, trans in a way um, is is what's being attacked, not in a way trans people are taking the brunt of the attacks uh, from, from the right wing most of the time now, but it's this bottom up percolate percolating up almost like an old coffee pot. Like it's finally starting to bubble up and it's all the bubbles are all the variations of individuality and individuality is being expressed in sexuality, in gender, in, in points of view. And as bubbly and messy as that is. I think maybe you talk about that, the messiness of all of this. Sure. It's what it's what humanity is. And we are not, and I'm wrapping up my point here. I mean, it's a large point, but I think that the more oppression we see in, in various countries or in people trying to, you know, put people into a box, that's where this tension arises because it's like you're putting the lid down on that boiling kettle. It's like you've created a pressure cooker. Mm-hmm. And if you let it keep going, it's going to explode because it's just nature for it all to bubble out. Right. And it, it really, that comes from this desire to put people into boxes and to say, you're this, or you're this, or you're not. And people get really freaked out by that about, you know, not being able to categorize people. and we do this all the time. We put people into boxes because we say things like blondes have more fun or women are emotional. These are stereotypes. And yet we, we struggle to do that for ourselves because when we think about ourselves, we don't necessarily think about the stereotypes. We don't see ourselves in those stereotypes. And, and I agree that I think when you put the lid on, when you try to force people to fit into a box, the lid can come blowing off. And it's better just to allow it all to exist. I think of it as the difference between, um, and I don't want to offend American listeners, but the uh, American way of life is, is um, the melting pot right? They describe it all the time as the melting pot. And that's really about bringing your identity to that pot and throwing it in and Mm -hmm. being American. And I appreciate that. But the Canadian approach is the mosaic that you bring your identity to this mosaic and you add it in and it just keeps adding on and growing and expanding and changing. And that's great. So you don't have to be anything but who you are. You speak about um, safe spaces and the cost of the closet. And I was just re- remembering long time ago, uh, a former partner, a, a friend of his, was this Sicilian, he, such a deep voice and so masculine acting and the way he talked. And well, we had fun. <laughs> <laughs> but then I remember we went out to a bar uh, that no longer exists. And we're like, oh, there's so-and-so. And he comes over, all swishy, high-pitched voice, sits on my partner's lap, hand up. And we both look at each other like, what happened? Not in a like derogatory way, but from... Well, he finally came out of the closet. Right. And I was reminded of that but by the cost of the closet because he had such a homophobic father that would say things like, well, he would swear at all the fags and the dykes on the pride parade as he was watching like the television showing the pride parade. And 
his son would just not say a word, would mm-hmm. suppress, suppress, suppress. And when he finally came out into the community, he blew out of the, like literally <laughs> that, that, that kettle top just blew right off. And then after a while, he kind of found himself in his right. own sort of human nature within everything. But it was a fascinating expression. Maybe tell us more about the need for safe spaces and the cost of the closet in whether it be an organization or an actual workplace. Well, I think safe spaces is fundamental to LGBTQ2 plus inclusion because ultimately it comes down to safety. And as queer people, we have faced uh, a not insignificant amount of uh, lack of safety. That was a, that's a double negative, isn't it? We, we have faced a significant amount of violence and discrimination in our lives and um, so having a safe space, whether that's a safe space as a parishioner, as a student, as a patient, as an employee, it is fundamental to our ability to engage, to be productive, to participate. Um, and if we don't feel we're safe, our natural instinct is to retract is to uh, not expose ourselves to situations that are not safe. And while, while a concept of safe spaces, um, it, it originally dates back to the, uh, you know, uh, the bars in Los Angeles uh, in the 1960s and 70s when being queer was illegal, but really it took shape in universities and colleges, um, which focused on that concept of, of safe space. But, I think it's in it is imperative for uh, employers to um, to create that in their environment, not just employers, I mean hospitals, churches, et cetera, all spaces, to focus on what is safe, not just for LGBTQ2 plus people, but for all people, that it is a space free of bullying and bias and discrimination and harassment and violence. We as LGBTQ2 plus people are the invisible minority. We can hide. Some of us, not all of us. And I think it is a fundamental, you know, and I talk about this all throughout the book, that it is fundamental to have that safe space if you want to provide an inclusive space for LGBTQ2 plus folks. The cost of the closet is is a model that um Originally, it's from a guy called John Mort- Martin, who worked at IBM a number of years ago. And um, he's a wonderful person. And he created this model that really helps to articulate how much it costs when you're not creating an inclusive space. And there is a cost. It's not as simple as saying, oh, you know, I, I, you know it's okay for you to be queer here, but don't talk about it. That's not enough. That I, you know, there is a cost to either being the educator or being closeted. And that cost is on the individual. The individual experience is a cost, but so does the organization. Absolutely. And I, I actually do some, some math in the book to explain what that cost is and how you can calculate your own percentage of what's it costing in wasted time in lost labor in higher levels of turnover in lower levels of levels of engagement there is a cost it's not a freebie um and if you aren't creating an inclusive space i guarantee you it's costing you something how does that lead into or support a a zero tolerance policy and what does that mean exactly yeah, so zero tolerance policy is is a, a one strike you're out approach to uh, bias and discrimination. It says that if you uh, if you complete an act of uh, discrimination against a person, then you are immediately out. And I am an advocate for a zero ish tolerance policy that you have to take the circumstances into consideration. Um. There are, there are some obvious things that 
are absolute no-goes. You sexually assault someone at work, haven't, you know, don't let the door hit you on the way out. But there's a lot of subjectivity in I mean, claims. Human rights complaints are very hard to prove. And so there's a lot of subjectivity that you need to kind of navigate through. So when a claim is made, you have to believe the person making the claim 100%. But then you have to conduct an investigation and then deal with what you find. And I think more often than not, we find situations where it's a misunderstanding, it's unintended. um, And then I think we owe it to everybody to allow that person to uh, grow from that situation and learn and develop as opposed to you're fired. Yeah. It seems like that's an important aspect in, you know, the growth of everyone. Uh, and I, I was thinking of saying of both sides of the uh, dispute, but of everyone in general, also for the corporate culture or for the organizational culture in the sense of always working towards creating greater understanding and acceptance. And if you hit that wall and that other person or the one person or, or somebody is not willing to compromise, um, you know, we've already got a very strong cancel culture, which is not exactly the same thing, uh, but it is so easy to, it can be a little too easy to take something that really isn't a full on offense. And I'm using very general terms, Mm -hmm. but if there can be understanding and if there can be education and if there can be growth, um, especially from, I guess, the person who was considered the offender, um, what I would think, and I wonder if you've got any examples of, you know, a kind of a pseudo toxic, not quite totally toxic culture where something like this was happening, but progress was made. Um, education was brought in and, and people actually grew and greater harmony was achieved. Have you had experience with something like that? Yeah. As you're talking, I'm reminded of a, a, uh, this is a number of years ago, I was dealing with a, a challenging situation in a client environment. And um, the it was with an LGBTQ2 plus person and a, a straight cis person. And the LGBTQ2 plus person felt that there was a great deal of homophobia, transphobia, et cetera, going on. And their relationship uh, had become borderline hostile. And this was not a, a power relationship. They were just coworkers. And we did some group coaching together and figured out what was going on. And it turns out that it actually wasn't homophobia and transphobia. It was had nothing to do with the person's sexuality or gender. But if we hadn't gone through that process, then we may have thrown the baby out with the bathwater. This employer may have fired an employee who was a high performer um, and uh, um, made a mistake, not a mistake, but, you know, sort of following a process to the letter of the law, as it were, doesn't necessarily mean that you find what you're looking for. And frankly, I've never seen an employer that actually follows their zero tolerance policy to the letter of the law. There's always some room for negotiation there. Well, but they're a really high performer. They really bring in a lot of money to the organization. That does not excuse discriminatory behavior. It should not. It does sometimes. So, um, I think what I'm not, and I am not advocating that type of behavior. What I'm saying is when an instance occurs, you dig into it and you figure out what's actually going on. And did a person actually make a homophobic comment? Did they actually do something that was transphobic or is it a misunderstanding? And can we work through that? Can we learn to respect one another? Again, instances where it's so obvious, like if you embezzle a million dollars from the company, 
you should not work for said company. But more often than not, there's a lot of of uh, unknown in there. And I, I think it's important that we learn from this. Keeping in mind, if you fire a person, let's say, I don't know, let's say someone made a comment and they said something like, oh, I don't know why we need pride festivals. There's no straight pride. Let's say someone said that. And another person heard that, a member of the community heard that and filed a complaint and the employer uh, fired that person. Do you think that the person who got fired learned anything from that? That they have changed their perspective? No. What it's done is reinforced a homophobic, biphobic, and transphobic belief system into their perspective completely. It doesn't help them to grow. So, you know, I think uh, helping them to and understanding some people are a total write-off and there's just no saving them. But if you can at least give it a try, you may end up, everyone wins in that situation. Being fired and being canceled for your beliefs, as you said, you know, really just grounds that individual more solidly, more defensively that, oh, well, then my beliefs must be right. And if that's only more at sort of an ancient brain sort of neuroscience perspective, it's like, well, now I have to put up these defenses even more because this is the language we're talking about here. That's part of my identity. That's part of my belief system. And you know, one of the things I learned from uh, my, my coach and expression when I'm working with clients is that the thing isn't always the thing. So if I'm working with a the client, they come and they're talking about this and we dig in a little bit more and we dig in a little bit more and we help them get clarity and focus. And then suddenly they get an insight. It's like, oh, I didn't want that. I actually want this. Or because of this feeling, that's actually what I'm feeling. I thought it was something surface level, but no, it's actually something much deeper. And this is the this is the human part of this work, mm-hmm. which goes far beyond just the numbers and the measurements and you know, will adding DEI or having a safe space for LGBTQ people increase profits. <laughs> yeah. Which is I, I know the work that you do very much because when that is taken on in liberalism and in capitalism, that is what is going to move the needle forward. Yeah. It is, yeah. sadly. Measurements and data in the section of the book you're talking about finding in uh, two chapters, finding and retaining LGBTQ uh, people. So why do we need to know? Uh, this was a, an interesting discussion in the book that I hadn't even thought. Well, you know, I've been aware of it, but I hadn't thought about it. Why do we need to know if someone is male or female on HR forms or government forms? And what are the alternatives? Isn't that an interesting question? We get asked all the time about what is sometimes uh, termed as sex and sometimes termed as gender. And um, the responses will tell you what it actually is. So if the responses are male and female, and you should also have intersex in there, then they're asking about your sex assignment. If the responses are man, woman, trans, et cetera, then that's about your gender. And we're asked at regular intervals, why do people need to know? These are old forms. The labor code, every time you start a job, you are required to fill out a form that asks you, are you male or female? Never is intersex an option. That's a big problem unto itself. Um, And why do they need to know that? They don't. There is nothing about that information that is required in employment. It is, I don't even know why it's still on there. I guess it's one of those things like it's illegal to beat your rugs on Wednesdays in the city of East York. That is a law. It is still on the books. Yeah. It's a law from the 1800s that no one has bothered to take off the books because quite frankly, we just cost too much to get rid of these silly laws. They just don't enforce them. But it's the same case in these labor forms. Like, why are we still collecting this information? Why does it matter? It doesn't. 
you have my photo. Um, you can guess if you really want to know insurance forms. It used to be that a male sex identifier was an indicator of a shorter lifespan. That's not the case anymore. Um, so, you know, this is one of these things of ask yourself why, why you're collecting in the information. I, I did a project with a client and I talk about it in the book. Um, this is a, an insurance and, and healthcare provider and they were being asked to add more options to the questions around gender. And I challenged them to say, why are you asking it? Why do you need to know? And they went through, they have, I mean, I was really proud of them. They went through a process of looking at every single intake point uh, in a big organization with lots of different pieces and determining whether or not they actually needed the information. And where they didn't, they removed it. And where they did, they explained very specifically why they needed it and provided anybody who was collecting the data with information as to why they actually were asking that question. And they did things like in salutations. They got rid of salutations. Yeah. So when they send a letter out, no longer does it say Mr. Bach. Mm -hmm. It says Michael. Yeah. Because that's my name. Yeah. It's not the 1840s. We do not need to greet people by our salutation. No. And they updated language, which in turn created a more inclusive space for trans, non-binary, and gender non-conforming folk who don't mm -hmm. identify with those labels. Yeah. It was a big effort. Yeah. But ultimately, everyone benefits from it. There's subtle shifts, but it's very hard to see the things that have become so common that they're unconscious. Right. And just because it's common doesn't mean it's right uh, or oh. right anymore or, or accepting or inclusive. Right. There are so many things in life that we say, well, that's the way we've always done it. Yeah. Okay. So. But why? <laughs> it doesn't make it the right thing to do. It doesn't make it the most efficient thing to do. You do it, but why? Mm -hmm. I'm working on a project reviewing some documents and they keep using the term given name instead of first name. Given name, meaning the name given to you, assigned to you at birth. Yeah. Well, guess what? For a lot of trans folks who haven't necessarily transitioned their legal name, the term given name could be quite problematic. Like, my given name and my chosen name may be two different things. And I said to them, why do you need this information? This is not a legal application. And in the end, where we're landing up is they're changing it to first name. It, you know, but again, the whole process was, well, this is the way we've always done it. Okay, well, things are changing. So come on, let's try changing this. Good. Well, if you... Final questions. If you're a small organization, maybe it's a volunteer organization, maybe it's uh, just a couple people that are paid staff, the rest are volunteer or just, you know, whatever, no budget or very little, but they know something's missing. They know they have to do some work. Um, what do you suggest they do? Well, obviously, buy my book. Um, the whole, and I'm being facetious and yet honest at the same time, because I wrote this book specifically with those organizations in mind. You do not need to spend thousands of dollars hiring me to come in and do the work for you. You don't. I mean, feel free, but you don't need to do it. You can really do it on your own. Small acts go a long way. Um, uh, and it's, it's those, you know, individual moments that make a big difference. You don't need a big diversity and inclusion team. You don't need an LGBTQ2 plus employee resource group. Um, think about how you engage with people, whether those people are your employees, whether they're your volunteers, your parishioners, your students, your patients, um, think about how you engage with them. And are there moments where 
maybe you're asking information that you don't necessarily need. Um, are you providing information? Starbucks has, has done this, just to give a shout out to Starbucks, where um, I don't know if it's mandatory, but their um, their associates in the stores can wear a small name badge that, or a little badge that says, my pronouns are he, him, what are yours? In doing that, first of all, you don't have to continually introduce yourself by saying, hi, my name's Michael. My, my pronouns are he, him, which is just awkward at some point. In doing that, though, they've sent a message to everyone that this is a safe space, that theirs is a safe space where they can identify by their pronouns and they're not going to get misgendered. They're not going to get labeled incorrectly. It's going to be respectful of their identity. It's little acts like that that go a long way to ensuring that your safe, your space is safe. So what would you say is the personal question, the biggest impact you've had in your work that you're most proud of? Oh, the biggest impact. Um, that's a tough question, Darren. I, I think I would probably have to say my parents. I know that's going to sound very Pollyanna, but um, my parents have had a, a massive impact on me. Um, in the, I was just talking about this with my mother this weekend. You know, I came out at seventeen. Um, in in the late 1900s, as the children say. <laughs> and um, for a long time, I, I really believed that she didn't know I was gay, that she was surprised when I came out. Mm-hmm. And she actually said to me just this past weekend, she said, I always knew you were gay. The reason why she goes, got so upset was because it was 1987 and gay men were dying at a very fast pace because of HIV AIDS. And she was just worried that I was going to contract the virus and die. And they've had an incredible influence on my life and on who I am and the work I do. And I have a lot of moments of pride in my life of things that I've done that I think, yeah, I did that and I'm proud of that. Um, But, you know, the the number one thing for me is the, the influence that my parents have had on who I am and what I do, because if, if it weren't for them, I wouldn't be where I am today. That's wonderful. That's a nice example of humility and human connection there. That's lovely. Got to have a little bit of it. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not a a complete Android. So I haven't forgotten the question I was going to ask towards the beginning is so you, you're sort of a free roaming independent. Now, what are the plans for the next five to 10 years in your work? Oh, don't write another book. That's top okay. of the list. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. I probably will knowing me. Um, y- yeah. What are, what are the plans? Well, continue to do the work we do, continue to focus on pushing the envelope and transforming the way organizations think about this topic. Um, you know, there's a lot of organizations that look at this work, not just around LGBTQ2 plus inclusion, but around inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility as a whole. And it, it, you know, there's a lot of performative behavior out there and a lot of Band-Aid solutions. Oh, we need everyone to take this training. Mm-hmm. Do you? Mm-hmm. What's, why? What are we doing? Let's back up for a second. Um that's really the focus for the next five to 10 years uh, is, is really focus on, on how can we transform? How can we continue to move things forward? Um, I'm, I'm getting to that point in my life where really seeing the change is the important part. Um, It's, it's uh, I want to see the results, the fruit of my labor as they as they say. Um, that's really the focus. I mean, I think as a community, we need to do a lot more around understanding the experiences of the intersections of identity around the experiences of LGBTQ2 plus people of color, of indigenous folks, of people with disabilities, um, 
uh, of the trans community as a whole. Um, you know, we have a lot of work to do there because while you and I as white cisgender uh, presenting, I should say, we're, you know, we're not necessarily guaranteed to be white and cisgender, but white and cisgender presenting uh, men, things are pretty good for us. We're not necessarily facing a lot of homophobia in our day-to-day lives. That isn't the case for all people within the big LGBTQ2 plus rainbow communities. Um, and we need to do some work there. And we all need to do the work. Well, any final words? How do people find you? And what about this new book we've been talking about? Why, yes. Well, uh, where they can find me, um, in, probably in a bar. No, uh, they can... Uh, they can now that we to- can all go out and there's no... Right, now that human contact. Um, they can go to michaelbach.com or on social media. I am at the Michael Bach. And uh, if they want to find the book, they can go to uh, your favorite bookstore uh, as of March 29th, depending on when this comes out. And uh, they can also go to alphabetsoup.lgbt and find out where to get their copy of the book. Well, Michael, thank you so much for being a guest on the show again. I really appreciate the the conversation and uh, all the all the book, a lot of new things that I learned through the book, but always a pleasure. It's my pleasure, Darren. Thanks so much for having me.